This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. everyone and welcome to Women Who Travel, a podcast from Condé Nast Traveller. I'm Lale Arikoglu and with me, as always, is my co-host Meredith Carey. Hello! It's been well documented that we love all things books here at Women Who Travel and this week we're chatting with Nadia Wasef, one of the owners and co-founders of Diwan, Egypt's first modern bookstore. Her book, Shelf Life, Chronicles of a Cairo Bookseller, which is about running the store in a changing Egypt, came out last week. Congrats on the book release and thanks for joining us, Nadia. Thank you for inviting me. It's lovely to be with you. So in the book's prologue, it seems like the decision to start a bookstore, which is like not a small feat at all, um, happened kind of in a snap. What drove you to start the first store back in 2002? Well, I think like most decisions that feel like they were snap decisions, when we look at them a bit more closely, I think they kind of started a very long time ago. And it has a lot to do with travel, because I started thinking about my relationship to travel when you very kindly invited me on this podcast. And I realized something that travel for me has been about exposure. And it's been about exposure to other cultures. And so from when I was a teenager, and I think I complain about this in the book, my mother used to take us on all these trips and it was every summer. And I'm a teenager, it's summer, it's the 80s, you know. And and the last thing I want to do is visit museums and art galleries and theatres, but that's what I did. Because, you know, I mean, in the 80s, kids didn't really have opinions about how they were going to spend their summers. Nobody asked us. We just followed. You know, we tagged along. I think this sort of love for cultural activities, cultural output, this consumption of other cultures began, you know, in our family from when I was a teenager. And I think it goes hand in hand with reading, with books, with this sort of appreciation And so that's always been there. And then, you know, if you fast forward to the summer of 2001, and lots of things had happened for me on a personal level. Um, I had just lost my father after a very long illness, and I had become disillusioned with my work in sort of gender and development. And I decided to quit everything. And this was this moment of rupture in my life. It was a turning point. 
And we were sitting down to dinner one day with some friends, my sister and I, and, and Nihal and Ali and Ziad, and we were having dinner together. And it was one of those, if you could do anything at this point in your life, you know, now that you're jobless, what would you do? And Hind and I both said we'd open a bookstore. And then it was one of these things where it all just happened. You know, I think, you know, we, we found the wonderful location. Everybody seemed interested. We said, okay, let's set up this company. You know, and, and I'm so grateful that these things happened and that actually we were all too naive to actually think about what we were doing. Because, I mean, had I known what the next 20 years of my life would look like, there's a very big chance I wouldn't have done this. But thank God I didn't know because I'm very happy. So there is a mention in the book that it was your mother who suggested the name of the bookstore, D1. What does it mean and how do you think it came to encapsulate your intentions when you all cooked up the idea for the shop? Well, I think our intentions preceded the name. And mind you, I mean, it's very bizarre to keep traveling back 20 years because in 20 years, so much has changed. But for instance, when we, you know, set out on this, we started saying, so what's going to be different about this bookstore? And it dawned on us, and again, here comes travel. We had been to all the, the Barnes and Nobles and the Shakespeare and Company and the Borders and, you know, we'd been there and we'd seen them. And we were wondering why there wasn't one of those in Cairo. And in actual fact, what we did that was innovative was to open this modern style bookstore in Cairo. But the concept itself had been around everywhere else. And thanks to travel and the exposure that we got from that, we decided to do it. But we did it our way. And our way was that, you know, yes, we were going to include books and music and film and documentaries and a children's section, and of course, the quintessential cafe. You have to have the cafe. That was the, the element of modernity and the element of spending time. It was no longer, I'm gonna dash in, pick up something. No, 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 I'm going to spend my time, my leisure time, my third place is gonna be in this bookstore. So there is that element of creating this space that combines all these different, um, basically, you know, cultural products. Um, but also it was this idea of East and West. And I mean, you have to understand, and, and, and I think Lali, you know, being half Turkish, you get this, okay? So you grow up with this conversation. Whether you're conscious that it's a conversation that's going on around you or not, it's happening about East and West. And where do you stand? And this idea of, you know, um, th these binaries, these polar opposites. And what we were trying to do was say, wait a minute, we're actually trying to have a conversation here and it doesn't have to be polar opposites and we don't have to be binaries. We can actually just bring things together. And so it was so important for us that we had Arabic, English, French and German books. I mean, predominantly more Arabic and English, French and German smaller. But this idea of mixing these languages, these cultures, these viewpoints together and creating this dialogue. And I think it all came very nicely in the section called Egypt Essentials because you had all these books. They crossed barriers of discipline and uh, language. So you had, you know, the, your, your travel books, you had your cookbooks, the literature, the history, 
the ancient Egypt stuff, all of it. And it was in different languages across different disciplines, trying to just give you a glimpse of a country, of a civilization, of a moment in time even. So this was the idea behind Diwan, that we were going to start a conversation about different cultures, different civilizations in different languages across different disciplines. You know, we needed a word or, or something that people from different cultures could pronounce and that had a meaning to what we were saying uh, or that reflected actually the, the, what the meanings that we were trying to introduce to people. Diwan was that, you know, and, and I think, you know, it was one day and I never forgot this, you know, we passed by my mom and she was having lunch and we were telling her, so we're trying to find a name for our bookstore and, and we think we're going to call it this and we think we, and, and it was a pathetic list of names, completely, oh, you know, and, and I think I've, I've sort of sponged them out of my memory. I can't remember what they were now, but I do remember it was unbelievably pathetic. And she kept on eating, you know, and she just barely made eye contact with us. And then she said, well, what about Diwan? And, and you know, we both looked at her and we're like, Diwan? She said, yes, you know, um, uh, Diwan Sher is, a, is a, an anthology of poetry or a collection of poetry. Uh, Diwani is a kind of um, calligraphy, uh, Arabic script. It is a meeting place. It is a title. It can be a sofa. It, you know, it fulfills so many things. Plus, you know, it's, it's in, I think it's in Farsi, it's in Arabic. You find it in a lot of different languages. And I mean, and the interesting part is different people pronounce it differently. So you have Diwan, you have Divan, you, you know, lots of different um, formulations of it. But as a word, it travels easily and it worked for us. You know, but again, I, I keep going back and saying that there were all these wonderful coincidences where we almost, it was almost effortless at times, that things just happened because they were meant to happen. Hindsight um, 2020. You know, you mentioned that bringing in the cafe really meant that people were going to spend time in this bookstore. Um, and in the book, you talk about how bookstores can kind of act as different types of spaces for different people. What have bookstores been for you? For me, bookstores typically have been a place where I escape myself and I find a new self. And I feel like I walk in there and the world is open to me. It really is. And I, I, the amount of uh, books that I've bought because I thought that this was going to be the start of a brand new interest for me is, is almost embarrassing. And there is a, a, a stack of them on the left-hand side of this room that I'm not going to show you. But it really has been a place for me where my new pursuits are born. Um, I think I have ridiculously eclectic reading tastes um, that almost defy sense at some points, but it's, it's really where I go to lose myself to find myself. Um, you know, because in the, the first five years, there was one Diwen, and I spent a lot of time on the shop floors watching people, seeing how they were responding to the space that they were in. And also I, I got re-educated because, you know, you walk in there and you start with your list of books. This is what you are going to stack your shelves with. But actually, readers, customers, they re-educate you and they also sensitize you to a market that you and them are jointly participating in creating. So I had, you know, I mean, for me, when I... Um, when I was doing the English book section, 
a genre like self-help books was for me something I had never really delved into. And I always sort of had this slightly um, snobby attitude towards self-help. But it became one of our biggest sections and one of our fastest growing sections. And, um, and the last chapter in the book is, I think, my little sort of tirade slash apology towards my flippant um, attitudes towards self-help, which, by the way, I have to tell you uh, that when I was doing the research for the self-help section, I realized that um, the first ever self-help book is uh, from about 2500 BC, wait for it, from ancient Egypt, and it was uh, called the teachings or the, the sayings of Tahotep, who was a vizier to one of the pharaohs, and he was trying to, you know, pass on his post to his son in the spirit of good old-fashioned nepotism, and the pharaoh only accepted if on the condition that he would sort of transfer his knowledge to him, and so he wrote the sort of the how-to manual. Oh my God, it's like pharaohs for dummies. It was wonderful, <laughs> it was wonderful. Uh, I love it. You write a lot in the book about the different people who would pass through the bookstore and the relationships you formed with those people. And of all the time that you spent within the walls of the bookshop and bookstores as you open more, Cairo has, of course, changed since 2002. Did you find yourself starting to romanticise that period of your life while you were writing the book? And, and was that something you embraced or tried to navigate around? Look, I did actually, I, I, I think I've romanticized uh, Cairo tremendously. But also, look, I have to be honest with you, I think Cairo is one of the most beautiful and exotic cities in the world. Um, and I remember when I got married and we went on our honeymoon, we went to Malaysia. And after we came back, a friend of mine asked me, how was Malaysia? And I said, well, you know, it's not as exotic as Cairo. And then I thought, oh, my God, what's wrong with me? How can I be this sort of, you know, limited? But um, I have romanticized Cairo. But I think Cairo deserves romanticizing because it's utterly beautiful. I did try to avoid nostalgia because I don't think we can do much with nostalgia. And, you know, after one spin around the block, nostalgia is boring. And also what, I've, what I did realize, I did enjoy hanging out with myself 20 years ago. And I was very happily surprised by the fact that that self no longer exists. I, and, and what I'm finding a little bit disturbing is when people have read this and they come up and talk to me, they are expecting to talk to that 20-year-old, extremely aggressive, competitive, over-opinionated, loud, uh, angry woman. And, you know, I mean, it's been 20 years. I have teenage daughters. Anyone who has teenagers knows that they will, you know, knock the wind right out of your sails. So, <laughs> so I find myself a terribly docile and quiet woman these days. But and it's it's very strange to to spend time with this other woman that I knew and, and, and liked a lot, but that I don't I, I can't relate to her anymore. But I really did enjoy writing her and spending time with her. But I, I, I don't relate. I, 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 there's nothing there of her left. And of course, I romanticized Dr. Methat, who is by far one of the most... I mean, I remember that my heart would sink every time he'd walk into a diwan. And, and I'd be like, there's a half hour of my life I'm never getting back. <laughs> um, 
But, you know, I have romanticized him in the book because, I mean, it is almost adorable that this man is going around ranting about, you know, ancient Egypt and this glorious past that we've lost. And I love that. But at the time, of course, you know, every time I saw him, I just, I, you know, I just thought, no, I'm going to lose the will to live now. And, and you know, and, and most of the time he really did want to have this conversation with me. And I would try to pass him off to someone else from the customers and they'd be like, you know, no, he, he really wants to continue this. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. I think what you said, you wanted to romanticize Cairo to a certain extent, but you weren't interested in nostalgia. How do you think the two things differ? Nostalgia is this sort of, I, I find it a negative emotion. It's almost a regretful emotion. There's despair behind nostalgia. It's this sort of this longing, this forlornness for, for a glorious past almost. Whereas I think to romanticize something is um, to make it beautiful, to make it fun, to show off its good qualities as well as its less attractive qualities perhaps, but to do it in a spirit of love, to do it in a spirit of flirtation. And, and I feel like big parts of the book, I'm sort of, you know, I, in the beginning, in the prologue, I say this is my love letter to Diwan, just like Diwan was a love letter to Cairo. And I feel that this is something, you know, that I hope comes across in the book. I hope that, you know, when somebody reads this, they, they see what's an interesting and, and contradictory... I mean, this is one of the things I love about Cairo. It's one of the most contradictory cities in the world. But it's within that contradiction that I find beauty. So there's a lovely chapter about your family's relationship to food and how that informed the cookery section in the store, um, especially when there were few well-known cookbooks dedicated specifically to Egypt um, and Egyptian food at the time. Now that you live in London and have for a number of years, um, how does food help you maintain that connection to Cairo? Oh my God, you're talking to the woman who has just spent last weekend trying to make, and Lale, you would know this, 
in Turkey, it's called dolma, but oh, in yeah. in but in Cairo, it's kosa mahshia or betingen mahshi, and I, you know, and I sort of sat there, you know, quality time on this over the weekend, trying to perfect it. I think I'm seventy percent there. So you know, I mean, many more weekends coming. But no, I mean, look, food is one of the most basic ways that cultures travel, and I think, I mean. My relationship with Cairo now is a very sort of um, romantic one, but it's also, I mean, it's its in the music and it's in the food and it's in the literature. It's in the cultural output of a place. And I think for most of us, that is really how we relate to places and people. It's, it's through these, the, these things that we consume, whether it's food or books or music, we, we consume these things. So yeah, food is, and we have every weekend, you know, family um, lunch slash dinner, you know, depending on, because time is fluid here. So, you know, <laughs> we have, especially during lockdown, super fluid. <laughs> oh, I have to ask, what are some of the things that you cook? The Egyptian stuff is extremely labor intensive. Okay. So my investment of time is normally at the weekend. And it's normally, I will make fool. So you, fool is fava beans. So there's different ways of making them. So you can sort of grind them and then you mix uh, in. The basic seasoning is uh, lemon, uh, olive oil, salt, lots of cumin. Because if you don't do cumin, you die of heartburn. You just die. Um, so you need lots of cumin. And then I normally like to add finely chopped tomatoes, onions, um, and of course, you know, the, the most important thing, which I don't cook, but I really, really hunt around to find, and I try and beg people who come from Egypt to get it for me, Aish Baladi. So Aish Baladi is the Egyptian baked bread. It is unbelievable. It is unparalleled. And you can't really eat full with too much olive oil dripping out of everywhere without Aish Baladi. It just doesn't work. Oh, and I make Baba Ghanouk, but I mean, I think we're going to get into some cultural arguments here because I think a lot of countries would like to claim it. Um, and fair enough. I mean, I'm all for appropriation and assimilation and the recycling of everything. Ideas, food, books, you name it. I have to say Baba Ghanoush, I mean, it's, it's so delicious. Of course, everyone wants to claim it. <laughs> of course, it's fantastic. But you haven't had it with Aish Baladi. You need to have it with Aish Baladi. It, 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 that's just, that's the game changer. <laughs> no and pickles. I make lots, of, I pickle cucumbers. Uh, you talk early in the book about the Egypt Essentials section of Diwan and how it morphed from being stocked with guidebooks and Western writers to being an eclectic collection that gave a much fuller picture of Egypt then and now. Uh, what do you hope travellers actually read beyond books like Death on the Nile before travelling to the country? Well, I think depending on your interests, because as I was saying before, um, Egypt is a very rich and interesting country. So, you know, there are so many different elements to it. You know, obviously there's the ancient Egypt element, which so many people are interested in and which... You know, again, when I go to all sorts of different cities, I find an obelisk in the middle of nowhere. And I wonder how this ancient Egyptian obelisk ended up here. I don't know, but they're all over the place. So, so many of Egypt's artifacts have traveled all over the world. 
um, whether, you know, of their own free will or by force, but they have traveled all over the world and they have informed and, and whetted people's appetites for Egypt. So there is that. There is also the, the Coptic history, which is brilliant and extremely interesting. And, you know, monasticism was created by St. Anthony in the desert in Egypt. And there's the Islamic part, and there's also the contemporary part. So, and this is me just sort of, you know, very crudely chopping it up. And then there's the rural part, the urban part, all of this. So, I mean, you know, there are novels like Beer in the Snooker Club, um, written in 1964 in English, about, you know, by Wagir Ali, who, who was trying to reconcile belonging in the UK and belonging in Egypt, because for him, both were sort of his and not his at the same time. So it's, you know, a novel like that, um, Chronicle of the Last Summer by Yasmina Rashidi, which came out, I think, five years ago, looking at the life of a young girl across three different um, summers, uh, across three different decades. And uh, she describes Zamalek, the neighborhood I grew up in, in the Cairo that I grew up during the same time. You know, there's Yusuf Idris, uh, who, who him and Nagib Mahfouz were nominated for the Nobel Prize for Literature. Sonal Abrahim and Bahat Tahir, who are of sort of the next generation of writers. Um, Radwa Ashur, Miral Tahawi, uh, Ahdef Suif, who writes in English, who wrote um, The Map of Love and uh, In the Eye of the Sun. So many, you know, and this is just talking about the fiction. There's, you know, one of my favorites uh, in nonfiction is Galel Amin, Whatever Happened to the Egyptians and Whatever Else Happened to the Egyptians is the sequel. And I, you know, because he looks at things like, you know, the telephone, the, the circus, uh, the train, things like that. And, and to plot um, the changes in society over the last 50 years through these themes. It really depends on, you know, the, the traveler's orientation. But I think that they open up a totally different door through which to walk into this country and really savor it. Amazing. Well, you can find Nadia's book in independent bookstores near you. Um, if people want to follow you on the Internet, where can they find you on social media? Okay, so I, I, I'm going to preface this by saying I'm a very erratic poster on social <laughs> media, <laughs> you know, because I have a love-hate relationship with it. So some days I love it. And most days I'm like, why is this thing here? It's distracting. And, you know, there's a lot of hostility and I don't like it. Anyway, sorry, the short answer to that is at Nadia the Bibliophile uh, on Instagram. Amazing. You can find me at Oh Hey There Mayor. And me at Lale Hannah. Be sure to follow Women Who Travel on Instagram and sign up for our bi-weekly newsletter. We'll also have a link to Nadia's book in the show notes. Thank you again so much for joining us and we'll talk to everyone else next week. Life doesn't come with an instruction manual, but the Life Kid podcast gets you pretty close. Whether we're helping you tackle life-altering questions or just your everyday pickles, we've got deeply human solutions to your deeply human problems. Listen now to the Life Kit Podcast from NPR. 